You know, it's even in a moment right now where I can hear his voice. This man would walk around the hallways of the basement of this church, and he would bellow out these words, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Dale was the custodian at our previous church in Kentucky where we got to serve, and he would walk around eager to tell people about Jesus. I remember seeing tears come down his leathery cheeks as he recounted how Christ had changed him and how eager he was was for all people to come to know the Jesus who had saved him. Now, Dale was a blue-collar worker. It's not this high education that he had. He didn't know trigonometry or calculus or any of those things. But when you encountered Dale you knew that you had just met someone who had been with Jesus. When you get to Acts chapter four, we see some untrained, uneducated, ordinary men who are going toe to toe with the Sanhedrin, the learned 70 plus men of the high court of Israel. And they preach the gospel with power and the court is amazed They realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. As a faith family, we're walking through this great book of the faith, this historical narrative that Luke left for us is volume two of a two-volume set, volume one being the gospel of Luke, the book of Acts is volume two. These two things, they, they go together. We've seen how the spirit has descended upon the people of God. The church has been born. You go back to Acts chapter one, we see where Jesus ascends up into heaven. He sits down at the right hand of God the Father where he is ruling and reigning over all things. We see in Acts chapter two that Simon Peter stands up after the Holy Spirit has descended upon the apostles. Simon Peter preaches the gospel and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and the church is born. You get to Acts chapter three and we see the first miracle take place as John and Peter heal a lame beggar outside of the temple. This man's life is so radically changed. He goes into the temple complex, leaping and jumping and praising God for what the Lord had just done in his life and it led to a gospel opportunity where thousands of more people hear the gospel a movement has begun something that satan himself cannot stop the spirit of god is at work drawing men and women and children into the kingdom through this powerful and true gospel the disciples are then arrested by the sanhedrin This 70 plus elders who gather together as the Supreme Court over Israel, they don't like the fact that these men are preaching the resurrection. Well, the next day after they get out of jail, Simon Peter stands before the Sanhedrin, these 70 men in a semicircle, multi-layered room, and there he stands with John and this man who's been healed through their ministry, and he preaches the gospel with boldness. You see where he spikes the football in Acts chapter four, verse 12, where he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given among people by which we must be saved. 
And then we get to Acts chapter four, verse 13. And the scripture says this. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. These two apostles, full of the Holy Spirit, are preaching the gospel with clarity and authority and power, and it amazed the high courts. You see, having an education, theological training, and political influence, these are not essential things to be used by God in his kingdom. But I want you to notice this morning in the text what is essential to be used by God in his kingdom by looking at the character of Peter and John as they go toe-to-toe with the Sanhedrin. Let's look at the text together. I want you to see the first thing is this. That I want you to see the courageous disciples who are as bold as a lion. Verse 13. The text says they observed the boldness of Peter and John. The Sanhedrin is used to having people cower in fear before them. But here are these two men who aren't scared. They're not afraid. And the Sanhedrin is silenced. Look at verse 14. Because these spirit-empowered, gospel-motivated men are standing before them with the proof of the miracle that took place of the lame beggar standing next to them, verse 14. And Peter is preaching the gospel with such boldness in verses 8 through 12 that the Sanhedrin was amazed. The, the boldness of these two men, it was captivating. It, it shocked the Sanhedrin. They're blown away by the boldness of these men. You see, boldness is a New Testament mark of a believer. You fast forward in the chapter four, verse 31 of Acts. We're gonna get there hopefully in the next couple of years. Where it says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. And as we're gonna see in Acts chapter nine, After the apostle Paul, who's called Saul at the time, comes to faith in Christ, he's going throughout Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. In Acts 13, we see Paul and Barnabas there at Antioch, boldly preaching the gospel. In Acts 14, we see Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. There they are boldly speaking the name of the Lord. In Acts 18, Apollos was in Ephesus, speaking boldly in the synagogue. In Acts uh, 28, Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest, but the scripture says he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In fact, when you dig in to the prayers of Paul, he's not asking for wealth. He's not asking for health. He's not asking for all of these material things. He's asked for boldness. Would you pray for me to be bold? He asks the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, Words may be given me, so I will boldly make known the mystery of the gospel. You see, boldness is the opposite of fear. Boldness means standing with conviction upon truth, regardless of consequence. Now, boldness doesn't mean being a jerk. It doesn't mean being abrasive. 
Sometimes Christians can come across thinking they're being bold and they're being offensive, okay? The offense should not be the believer. The offense is in the gospel, okay? We want to make sure that the gospel is what is offensive, not us. And yet simultaneously, when we feel the fear of, I don't know if I can say this, I don't know if I have the courage to say this, we go to the Spirit and ask for boldness to speak the gospel, to speak truth, and to stand firm upon conviction regardless of the consequence. You see, there's a temptation amongst believers for us to be liked by the world. That we, we want to be like getting the praise of people. We want to be those who are included. We have this fear of being ostracized, left out, mocked, or neglected for our faith in Christ. Beloved, may that not be true of us. May we be a people who are not so eager to receive the applause of men that we receive the rejection of God. That we're a people who are not seeking the praise of man. May we be a people who stand firm upon truth regardless of the consequence. And you see, there's also a danger amongst pastors, people like me who have the responsibility and the accountability before God to bring the word of God to bear. But if at any time there's a pastor or a believer who seeks to pull back on the impact or the accuracy of the word, let's say it better. Anytime a pastor tries to take away the sharpness of the double-edged sword of the word of God, he's committing malpractice. Now, we are not to be those who swing the sword and hurt those who are in our path, but like a skilled surgeon, we use the word of God to cut so that it may lead to healing. And yet we've got to be believers who are going to say, this is the truth we stand here and we will not apologize for it. We're not going to compromise. Faithfulness is going to require boldness. For you and I to be faithful to Jesus, we've got to be prepared to be disliked by the world. You see, faithfulness necessitates boldness. We've got to be willing to stand firm on what God has made clear in his word. We must be on guard from those who may seek to tickle our ears to tell us what we want to hear. For the time is now here when people will multiply teachers who will not teach sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, multiply teachers so they can hear what they want to hear. Paul wrestled through this. And so he asked the question in, Acts, uh, in um, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of people or of God? Or am I trying to please people? Watch this. If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So you've got to make up your mind right now. Whose praise do you want? Man that is fleeting and temporary or God's that is eternal and sustaining? May we be a people who don't seek the praise of this world. We're not those who are seeking to be politically correct. We're not those who are seeking to be liked. You see, a, a soldier does not get wrapped up in civilian affairs. 
we're seeking to honor our commanding officer. We want to point people to Jesus, the true and faithful Jesus, as he is revealed in his word. But you see, when you decide to stand firm and to take a stand for Christ publicly and boldly, you never know who's watching. You see, when one believer takes a bold stand for Christ, it stiffens the spines of other believers. All of a sudden, other believers are like, man, look at that guy. Man, look at that girl. She's standing firm for Jesus. And all of a sudden, you're like, I think I can do the same thing. Several years ago when I was in college, I had to take a class called Death, Dying, and the Quality of Life. And it was not a fun class to sit through. It's about 100 people in there. And the professor made this comment. No one knows what happens after death. And so I raised my hand and I said, unless someone dies and comes back to life, which he already has, and he tells us about it, and his name is Jesus. You could hear a pin drop in the room. Every head turns and looks at me. Does anybody else get back sweat in those moments? (laughs) Just me? Okay. The professor makes this scoffing comment back at me and moves on with his lecture. This girl sitting next to me goes, that was awesome. (laughs) All it takes is one believer to take a stand and it strengthens the believers around them. I remember, I'm not trying to like humble brag here. I was at a conference in which the, the founder and CEO of Hobby Lobby was there. And he was talking about how he was standing firm on biblical principles and it had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I just told him, I said, hey man, I just wanna say thank you because of your firm stand on the gospel, it's stiffening my spine. He's willing to stand firm with boldness. When you take a bold stand for Jesus, you have no idea who's watching. But you very well may be mobilizing the future generation to take a stand for Christ where he needs to be stood for, wherever that is and whatever that looks like. This is what's happening here in the text. It's these disciples are standing firm. Peter and John are standing before the very men who have the authority to kill them. And they're placing the responsibility of Jesus' death on them. You killed the author of life. There's boldness. You are the ones who are responsible, yet God raised him from the dead. But you see, when you stand firm with boldness, you must be prepared for what may come back. Okay, for Daniel, it meant spending a night in a lion's den. For Joseph, it meant being thrown in prison. For John the Baptist, it meant being beheaded. For Jeremiah, it meant being mocked and thrown in stocks. For Simon Peter, it will eventually mean crucifixion upside down. For the Apostle Paul, it will mean beheading before the Roman Caesar, Nero. And for the Lord Jesus Christ, boldness meant suffering, torture, and death. You see, Jesus purchased your sin. You are so loved by God today that he knows everything about you, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, and he still loves you. That he offers you grace and mercy through his death on the cross. 
And he goes and his blood speaks a better word than your sin. So that in Jesus, there's no shame. He doesn't bury you on your past. He raises you from the dead, gives you new life. So those who turn from sin and trust in Jesus by faith, he receives you. You are so loved by Jesus. And he treasures you and he proves it through a blood-stained cross. And he doesn't stay dead. This Jesus is risen and ruling and reigning over death, over the cosmos. And one day he's soon returning to rescue all who trust in him. This is the gospel we rally around. And if you do not know Jesus today, I implore you, I beg you, please turn from your sin, your selfishness, your pride. Turn from that, repent and run to Jesus. He will receive you and accept you. He's an all-sufficient Savior who is faithful to receive you unto himself. And he's the Savior who defeated death itself on the third day. You see, Jesus purchased your sin so that you can stand boldly for him. He died publicly so you could represent him publicly. That you can boldly proclaim this is true. But you know what's also true? Is that the resurrection empowers boldness. The truth of the empty tomb changes us from cowards to those who are as bold as a lion. That's what's happening here. Remember who's standing here in Acts 4. It's the same Simon Peter who a few months earlier was in Caiaphas's courtyard denying that he knew Jesus three times. I don't know the man. I'm not with him. I'm not with him at all. Rooster crows. And he realizes, oh my gosh, I just did what Jesus said I would do. Deny him. And now here's Simon Peter standing before the same Sanhedrin that Jesus stood that night. And he's as bold as a lion. What changed? The empty tomb. He saw it. He smelled what that empty tomb smelled like. He visibly saw he's risen. He's risen indeed. And so now that the resurrection has grabbed hold of his life and the Holy Spirit has fallen at Pentecost, he is empowered, emboldened by the Spirit to stand before this Sanhedrin and proclaim the truth of the gospel. And y'all, this resurrection is still true. The tomb is still empty. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and the same Holy Spirit that's in Peter and in John is the same Holy Spirit that is in you. You can stand firm on the truth of the gospel. You can be bold as a lion because the gospel is true and the Spirit abides. Second thing I want you to see here in the text with the, the character of these men is I want you to see the common disciples who are untrained and uneducated. The Sanhedrin sat there with their mouths open in shock at the audacity, the courage of these disciples. Peter and John have just quoted Psalm 118 and placed the fulfillment of that scripture on them, that they are the ones who killed the Messiah. And the Sanhedrin probably begins to squirm in their seat. 
They're sitting here thinking, oh, snap. This isn't good. This is bad publicity. This is bad PR. We're being blamed for the death of the Messiah. And that's what's happening here. And here is the proof that what these guys are saying is true is the lame beggar from Acts chapter three is standing next to Peter and John. So the evidence is there. What's going on? Who are these guys? Who do they think they are? You see, these guys, they've not been educated in the depths of Torah. These guys haven't been trained by Rabbi Gamaliel or Rabbi Shammai. These were commoners. These two guys are fishermen from up north in Galilee. Verse 13, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. See, verse 13, y'all, is a great reminder that you don't need a PhD to be used by Jesus. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be charismatic. You don't have to have a great personality. You don't have to have all of this talent. You don't have to have all of this money and affluence. You don't have to have letters after your name to be used by Jesus. Now, just because these disciples were ordinary, unschooled men does not mean that we need to stay that way. Okay? We are to study to show yourselves, un, uh, show yourselves approved. Okay, we are to what? 2 Peter 3, I think it's like verse, what, 18? Where he says, uh, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we are commanded by Jesus himself to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. So we are to grow in our cognition of God, the study of God, studying sound doctrine, growing in our love for him and our knowledge of him. So we think biblically, Right, so as you're making decisions throughout your everyday life, you're thinking in light of the word. Like the word of God is what governs how you think, how you speak, and therefore how you, how you live. We're to grow in that, right? We don't remain uneducated novices. No, a mark that you're a believer is you're growing. You have a desire for more of Jesus. You're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So we can't stay there. But let's also make sure we're abundantly clear that you don't have to be brilliant to be used by God. You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. You don't have to be summa cum laude. You don't have to be valedictorian for God to use your life. That's what we see happening here. We must not make the mistake of thinking that you've got to be smart and trained and have a seminary degree to be used by God. Peter and John, they did not have formal Jewish training. They didn't have the credentials to sit on the Sanhedrin council. They had something better. Verse 13, they had been with Jesus. Let's unpack that some more. I put this in your notes. Two priorities for serving Jesus. Two priorities. Now, before we unpack this, it's important that I give this little footnote. This is really important. Priority number one comes before priority number two. Okay, order matters in this situation right here, what I'm about to teach you. So please understand, priority one is more important than priority number two. Both are important, but number one is primary. Priority one is this. Being with Jesus is more important than working for Jesus. What's happening in the text 
is Peter and John were recognized by the Sanhedrin as disciples of Jesus. These religious leaders are connecting the dots. They're realizing that the preaching of the gospel coming from these two men are two men who had spent years with Jesus. I mean, these guys, they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. Wherever he set up camp, they set up camp. Wherever he went, they went. Like these guys had spent time with Jesus. And y'all, the same is true for us. You see, our ability to serve Jesus begins at his feet. Kenneth, what are you talking about? If you go to Luke chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples go into the home of Mary and Martha. We also know later that it's also the house of Lazarus. And as they're there, Jesus is teaching these life-altering truths about the kingdom at the kitchen table, right? And the disciples are there and possibly neighbors and a crowd is gathering and they're sitting, sitting at the feet of Jesus is Mary, just basking in the moment, listening to his words, loving her savior, growing in her knowledge of the word. And there's her sister, Martha. Frustrated, cantankerous, and bossy. The scripture says that Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, watch this, y'all. Watch her tone. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. All right, we got dishes to clean. We got floors to mop. We got meals to prepare. I'm hosting Jesus in my house. I've got work to do, and here she is just sitting. So she, she goes to Jesus, don't you care? Okay, how about that question? Jesus, do you care? And then she commands Jesus to do something. Tell my sister to help me, okay? And I love how gentle Jesus is, full of compassion and mercy. Martha Martha, don't you love that? Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus is saying, listen, we'll get to the food. We'll get to the cleaning of dishes. We'll get to the household chores. Mary's choosing the right choice, sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'd encourage you, put your name there. Kenneth, Kenneth, you are worried about so many things. One thing is necessary, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Before you and I become so eager in serving Jesus, we must spend time with Jesus. Before we go to work for Jesus, we have to abide, remain, stay at his feet. It's essential for us to persevere in the gospel, for us to stay at the feet of Jesus. For my moms in here, your work is tireless. It never ends. There's always more dishes, more meals, more clothes, 
more household work, more kids who are demanding and asking, and it's continuous. May I say to you, if you're tired and exhausted, come sit at the feet of Jesus. If you're full of worry and anxiety and fear, come sit at the feet of Jesus. If you're thinking about your work and all the stress and all the things you've got to do and the to-do list and the, how you're going to make money, make work, how's it going to end? And how, everything's going to, there's so much going on, Jesus. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Before you go serve Jesus, spend time with Jesus. You say, you and I face dangers every day from our time with Jesus. And it looks like this. This is, for some of us, our greatest enemy to abiding in Jesus. There's always more social media. There's always more text messages and emails, things we've got to do. Put it aside and come sit at the feet of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples the night he was betrayed? He just finished the Lord's Supper with them and they were making their way down towards the Mount of Olives and he's teaching as he's walking and he says in John 15, verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what, church? Nothing. nothing. You can do nothing apart from Jesus. You can spin the plates. You can run the errands. You can preach the sermons. You can do all of the things that you do for the kingdom. But if you do it in your own strength, it's meaningless. Jesus says it's nothing that you can do apart from him. And so as we think about these two disciples who are boldly standing before the Sanhedrin, the mark that they belong to Jesus, they had been with Jesus. They spent time at his feet. I invite you, spend time at the feet of Jesus, praying, studying the word, journaling, meditating on the word, memorizing the word, just enjoying sitting in his presence. And I'm a doer, y'all. I love to work hard. Oh, I love it. There's nothing more important for my soul than to sit at the feet of Jesus. The big idea that I'm trying to drive home is Christ's presence precedes performance. Being with Jesus is a far greater priority than working for Jesus. The more you spend time with him, the more you become like him. Now don't miss that. If you are in pursuit of saying, I just want to be like Jesus, then spend time with Jesus. It's not seeking to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5 in your own strength. It's not, okay, I'm going to try and muster up these Jesus-like characteristics. No. You just go spend time with him. See, who you spend time with begins to be reflected in your character, in your nature. That's why Paul says in what, 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good character. 
If you hang out with the wrong people, don't be surprised when you start talking like them and acting like them, right? You see, you become who you behold. Who you spend time with will be a reflection of your character and who you're going to become. So number one priority, it's more important than number two, spending time with Jesus before you go work for Jesus. But then number two, being with Jesus empowers service for Jesus. For Peter and John, their work for Jesus was out of the overflow of the time that they had spent with him. You see, you and I, when we serve the Lord, it's out of overflow. It's out of what he's already done in us. And he begins to work and overflow out of us, right? And it's not our strength, it's his strength. Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, we get to work. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Oh, so it's not us. God is working in us and the overflow is we can go and work for him. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. It's one of my favorite verses because we really kind of see the competitive nature of Paul. He's talking about the other apostles and he says this, I love it. You can go look it up. I worked harder than any of them. Isn't that great? It's like, man, I outworked all those fools. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So the work that we do for Jesus comes from the overflow of our time with Jesus abiding in Christ, sitting at his feet, then empowers us and enables us to go and work for him. I'm, I'm beating this drum really hard because he's so many believers who don't get this. They, they serve Jesus and they live for Jesus in their own strength. If it is to be, it's up to me. That's the mentality. I've got to go do this. No, no, you do it out of the overflow of what's in your heart. And so you've got to get your heart rested and steady on Jesus. Studying his word, abiding in the spirit, trusting him, and then out of the overflow, you then go out and you serve him. And it leads to like the big idea, number two, it's what I'm trying to drive home here, Christ's presence promotes performance. And that means service flows from sitting Working for Jesus flows out of the overflow of who you already are in him. You see, it's courageously common people who abide in Jesus that leads to the spread of the gospel with power. All right, so Kenneth, what are you you calling us to? What do you want us to do with this? It's your impact point, and it's this. Daily spend time with Jesus and trust the Spirit to use you. You don't go work for God. He works in you and the overflow is the work that only he can do. It's amazing to see. If you find yourself just (sighs) sighing a lot, it means you need to take some time to go sit at the feet of Jesus. Allow your soul to find rest in him. It was about four years ago that Billy Graham passed away Christian leaders from all over the world descended upon a small town in North Carolina, one of whom was a man named Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer is a church missiologist, very sharp, smart guy. 
He leads the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. And a reporter who was reporting on the event of the funeral asked Ed Stetzer this question. Who is the next Billy Graham? Ed responded very quickly, Jane the Uber driver. And the reporter said, what do you mean by that? He says, my wife and I, we were driving to the airport to come to this funeral. So we took an Uber and the driver's name was Jane. And as we were driving, she asked us about who we are, where we're going. And I could tell that she's steering the conversation towards the gospel. And Jane begins to lay out her testimony and then shared with us the gospel. And I interrupted her and I said, Jane, we're already Christians, but man, you're doing such a great job. And he says, if you want to know who the next Billy Graham is, it's people just like Jane. And if you want to know how the gospel has spread all over the world, it's through common, ordinary people. People like Jane and people like Dale and people like you and people like me. Ordinary people who have been with Jesus. Let's get the gospel to the ends of the earth, y'all. And it begins at the feet of Jesus. Jesus.